my mic stand just fell. <laughs> okay. All right. Three false starts. We're finally recording. This is Making It Up, a podcast where we tell you what's happening in creative culture and why it matters. I'm Sharice Poon, and my co-host is Eugene Kan. We don't always have all the answers, but we try our best to reach a conclusion that adds value to the conversation. If you like this podcast, please share an episode with a friend. We really appreciate it. My subject this week comes from the cover story of the March 2020 issue of The Atlantic. It was written by David Brooks, who is a well-known New York Times columnist. The title that they gave the article is The Nuclear, sorry. The title that they gave the article is The Nuclear Family Was a Mistake. And I think that that title is kind of misleading slash sensational, but, you know, is a title and they need people to click. So it's fine. Instead, what I have for a subject is it's more about how do we define family and what type of family makes the biggest difference in our lives. And that's really what it's about. It's not so much like a condemnation of the nuclear family. Like that's not it's not a takedown, which is what like the title kind of suggests. So it's a really long read. I actually came across it because you shared it. I think you shared it because Bezod shared it. Bezod sent this to me privately and it took me a few days to actually get around to reading it. Yeah. So shout out to Bezod for putting this on our plates. It's a long read. Like it took me more than one sitting to get through it. Yeah. I consider it kind of like, it's not really a short book. It's kind of like, I don't know how to describe it. I almost wanted to say that it's like a short book, but then I thought you were going to laugh at me for saying that. But it is genuinely a really long essay. So not to scare It's kind of broken into chapters, people. right? Yeah, it's broken into chapters. Yeah. I'm going to kind of do an overview, but tell me if I'm like getting too pedantic. So it opens with this film called Avalon, which is from 1990, directed by Barry Levinson. And it's a movie about the decentralization of the family. And the movie itself is about uh, one family, and it traces the trajectory of where the family used to be about all these siblings and extended relatives and then it becomes like ever smaller and more fragile and fragmented by the end of the movie and brooks uses that as like just kind of the selling point of this encapsulation of what has happened to family overall across like american history then the bulk of part one is very historical like it's a lot about like american history from 1800s to the current times through the lens of family the sizes of households, and there are so many statistics and numbers. So if you're the type of person who really likes to dive into stats, like this article will please you. But I'm going to read a semi-long quotation, but I think that it is the nutshell of the article, okay? He writes, if you want to summarize the changes in family structure over the past century, the truest thing to say is this. We've made life freer for individuals and more unstable for families. We've made life better for adults, 
but worse for children. We've moved from big, interconnected, and extended families, which help protect the most vulnerable people in society from the shocks of life, to smaller, detached nuclear families, a married couple and their children, which give the most privileged people in society room to maximize their talents and expand their options. The shift from bigger and interconnected extended families to smaller and detached nuclear families ultimately led to a familial system that liberates the rich and ravages the working class and the poor. And he does go into more detail than that in the ways that extended families are a good thing. Like if anything, this is a article, essay, short book that argues for why extended families are more resilient and provide support and they're a socializing force that gives moral education and about how detached nuclear families uh, break really rigidly and leave people to be more vulnerable. I don't think you prepared for this, but do you have like a quick sort of 15 second pros and cons for nuclear family versus extended family? That to me was what really provided clarity in terms of this argument. The pros of, which I kind of already said, is of the extended families is that they're more resilient and they provide greater support. So if you think about like your relationships in a nuclear family, it's like the nuclear family, as we kind of define it in this article, is two parents, like a married couple and like two and a half kids. Right. And so he describes it as like these really intense relationships that break more rigidly. And once like there is one fracture between like, let's say, a parent and a child, then the entire family kind of falls apart. And then you're left with mm-hmm. like individuals who have no support network. But in an extended family, it doesn't matter if the parents and the children themselves have like super tight relationships because there are so many more Mm -hmm. people that you can spread out the relationships with. However, the con, he does say this about cons for extended families is that they can be more stifling and that they take away privacy and mobility and choice. And kind of one of the reasons we moved to this like ideal of a nuclear family is that we started to prize those things more privacy, individual choice and mobility. And so we traded stability essentially for mobility and dy- dynamism. And in some ways also you had the financial upside as well in this regard. I think I don't know that you directly said it. Financial upside of which type? Extended or nuclear? In terms of nuclear. Cuz they do mention that. They do mention that you have financial upside uh by breaking away no yeah they do there's financial upside of being in an extended family well okay no No, it also breaks on socioeconomic lines so nuclear families are good for nuclear families that are affluent i think one of the things they mentioned was there's a rising gdp that ah yes came that's what i was trying to get to yes yeah if you well i don't know if it's really an argument for the nuclear family but he describes that there's this chart that shows like the GDP of countries and it indicates that like countries that have smaller on average family like household sizes have higher GDPs and then they're richer basically but yeah the, the thing is that you can't look at that and I, Brooks kind of goes in, into the into this too is like you can't look at that chart just independently because he does describe how like when the nuclear family was working in America was for this period of time between 1950 and 1965, when everything in society collaborated to make the nuclear family work. So if you look at that GDP chart, it's not just about like small household size equals greater country GDP. It's also in relation to everything else that the country is offering, such as like uh, maternity leave, 
for example. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like, as in, in order for a nuclear family to really work well, it needs to have all of these other societal, governmentally offered policies that support the nuclear family. But in yeah. the in the American specific case where those things don't exist, then the nuclear family is more vulnerable. I'll, I'll just read exactly what you mentioned. Like the next paragraph, he says is that. So in in terms of that chart, basically he says there's a strong correlation between GDP and quote unquote living alone. He even mentions this chart's been haunting me. And he says that that chart suggests two things, especially in the American context. First, the market wants us to live alone or with just a few people. That way we are mobile, unattached and uncommitted, able to devote an enormous number of hours to our jobs. And secondly, which is a little bit unrelated to this financial angle is that Second, when people who are raised in developed countries get money, they buy privacy. So I guess for me, I think the reason why this is something that's interesting is it kind of intersects with uh, the whole sort of aspiration of just making a lot of money and what is the sort of byproduct that we're starting to see in front of us. Um, And I think that we've seen actually a lot of these things play out. And, you know, we've kind of talked about late stage capitalism. You know, we had our little sort of sprint there where we did maybe like two weeks of it but now it's sort of returning in the sense that as we talk about this we're starting to realize oh not only is it an environmental and and societal thing it's also impacting our family mm. bonds mm-hmm. right and i think that's why I'm, i I wanted to bring this part up mm. interesting i feel like there's two things to talk about one is the financial aspect which is this suggestion that the market wants us to live alone so that we can mm-hmm. spend more time working which is extremely bleak and i don't think that the rich countries like denmark and finland that that's necessarily what's happening and that's why the small household size leads to a greater gdp like i think it is related to like what i said earlier about like governmental policies but in the american specific context like i i do see that where like there's this culture of encouraging independence and posing it as like a moral value but in reality it is a capitalistic push like with mm-hmm. that kind of reasoning behind it. and then the second thing that is interesting and maybe perhaps more interesting because you and i are not economists for us to talk about is this kind of um this ingrained ideal in people's head about using money in order to buy privacy and independence and mobility so that so it seems that we as a, as a society and it's funny because we neither of us are in north america right now slash haven't spent time there recently but i think we still have this kind of somehow this ideal in our head that when we have more money we don't then want to have more people around us but it doesn't mean that those two things have to be like incompatible but I, I think that maybe it's the reason why we think in terms of that incompatibility. I mean, I think that it's actually a far more complex topic because it, in some ways it, it really highlights like how people are meant to spend their time, especially as they grow older. Mm. I think you and I are kind of at this sort of intersection of Eastern and Western values. Mm-hmm. And now that, especially you, like you've been away from your parents i've been away from my parents for the last i don't know like 15 years probably mm-hmm. right like if i if i probably had more means i would probably see them more often or whatever right because it's both 
the availability of time plus the means to see your parents. Yeah. But that's, but I wondered like, that doesn't necessarily feel like a, a fundamentally like Eastern mindset. It's just like what you want, right? So I'm, I'm trying to understand and unpack this because I don't, I don't know if, if there's some sort of like fractured state with the way the nuclear family has risen and by virtue of that, that actually sets the tone for a certain type of family interaction. Because mm. as you know, like, I, I mean, there's a lot of multi-generational households in Asian culture, right? Versus like in Western culture, prior to the sort of erosion mm-hmm. of financial means, mm-hmm, people mm-hmm. generally were expected to leave when they were 18. Mm-hmm, now mm-hmm. it's like, oh, you know what? You can't really afford yeah. to move out. So it's actually changed that dynamic. So I, I think that maybe we're just like, I almost feel like we're we're biting off more than we can chew here in terms of actually opening up a whole another can of worms that probably cannot be solved. And we're kind of extrapolating what's going on here. And maybe that's in part due to my own personal curiosity about this. The angle that we would take is from our personal situations, right? I mean, like we could we can talk about this essay and talk very specifically about like the kinds of numbers that Brooks presents and the North American situation that is evolving, which you have just described, where because of economic reasons, there are there's been a rise in multi-generational households in America. But because of you and I having very particular situations, then obviously, like we would read this essay from that angle. And it is interesting to me that you made a decision like 15 years ago to move away from your parents because I've only just now been grappling with like what that means for me, like why I am making this choice. And I think it's there's so many different factors that come into play when thinking about why I am making that choice. And it's not as simple as like, oh, I just want to be independent. It's, yeah. I I don't know. It's like, it's kind of, I mean, you probably know this just as well, because I didn't really have that many. So despite the fact I made an argument for multi-generational families, there's also a lot of these families where maybe the dad stayed in Asia and the rest of the family was abroad in North America or Australia, and they actually fractured the sort of nuclear Uh... family in even smaller bits. Because they had they made the decision, hey, you know what, I'm gonna make money in Asia and then you guys go to North America and you hardly see your dad. And the extended family is I mean, either either their grandparents came with them or they didn't. And that was kind of like one one way of looking at it. Well also extended is not just grandparents either. Correct. It could be like your aunts and uncles. Although that was to an extent kind of how I grew up because my dad, he had two sisters that moved with him to Canada as well. And we all lived in like generally like a 20 to 40 minute would drive. You, would you describe the way you grew up as being in an extended family or is it a nuclear family? The way Brooks de- defines it. I mean, I don't, I think we kind of teeter down the middle. I mean, I mean we, we didn't live in the same house. Did, do you, did you see that your had relatives multiple regularly? Families. I mean, my cousins lived maybe like a five minute walk away, which I think is pretty if rare. If that's the case, especially I would living in a small that Canadian as an town. extended family. The way that you grew up. And I also grew up in an extended yeah, family yeah. in Hong Kong where. Well, in Hong Kong, I think it's kind of easy because everyone's so close to one another. Yeah, but I also saw my extended family regularly. And I would consider at least, I mean, now it's a little bit different. But yeah. growing up, 
like both sides of my family were quite close. So that's actually an interesting thing as well, because this this essay is very much from like a uh, multi-generational North American perspective. So it's not really describing an immigrant family situation, because as you've just said, like immigrant families are mm. a little bit different in the choices they make for like economic reasons and also like cultural reasons. There were kind of two more things I wanted to add to just like flesh out this article to like do it justice. And one is that he does provide statistics showing that single parent and chaotic homes do result in children with worse health, mental health, less academic success and more behavioral problems. And it's not that the single parents somehow love their children less or treat their children less well. It's more about a lack of support and that they're vulnerable and not able to give the resources that would help children, you know, rise out of poverty and do as well as they could. So statistically, it is not an argument so much for a nuclear family as it is for having some type of support system in place for families that are like that. And mm. I, the last thing I wanted to mention was like the summary, like the takeaway, essentially. And what I wrote is that even though we as individuals value mobility and choice and privacy, ultimately, we still need the help of other people. And I've just broadened it to be like help generally. It could be economic and financial, but it could also be moral and spiritual and you know personal. And at the, the takeaway at the really end is that just we all need to have people of some type around us. And I was going to read Brooks's summary. At the end, he says, Our culture is oddly stuck. We want stability and rootedness, but also mobility, dynamic capitalism, and the liberty to adopt the lifestyle we choose. We want close families, but not the legal, cultural, and sociological constraints that make them possible. We've seen the wreckage left behind by the collapse of the detached nuclear family. We've seen the rise of opioid addiction, of suicide, of depression, of inequality, all products in part of a family structure that is too fragile and a society that is too detached, disconnected, and distrustful. And yet we can't quite return to a more collective world. The words the historians Stephen Mintz and Susan Kellogg wrote in 1988 are even truer today. Many Americans are groping for a new paradigm of American family life, but in the meantime, a profound sense of confusion and, and ambivalence reigns. So the question that I kind of wrote at the end is just open-ended. It's like, can are we capable of making a new family paradigm? And can we value family differently from the way that we have been valuing it? It's already happened. It's like celebrity culture meets brands. What do you mean? I don't And that's the unfortunate you. reality. Like, I think that everything that we used to get with an extended family now happens as quote-unquote community, which is why community under the pretense of brand don't... is so quote-unquote impactful. I mean, it's definitely not the most ideal thing, but I think it also f in some ways fulfills the the sort of pros and cons. No, sorry, it fulfills the pros for sure of what you want from an extended family without some of the cons. Like you can kind of dip in and out. If you choose to not participate, then it doesn't become a family I issue. I don't think that the family you get from branded community is like the type of family that I... Uh, branded community, I should... Let me walk that back and I just say community in general. Like, I'm not saying it has to be, oh, we connect over this brand's items. I'm just saying, like, let's say we have a mutual interest around 
um, I don't know, dogs, right? I think that soon that becomes a way for you to connect and create community and family-esque ties. And I think that's what I'm trying to get. I don't don't think it has to be guided by like, this is like this Nike community and the Nike community is what gives me the extended family vibes. Okay. (laughs) It could. It could. I shouldn't knock it. It could. It could. But also, I don't know if I'd be like, that's definitely like the route I see this going down. But don't you don't you see like the reason why like a making community potentially thrives is yeah under no, that I, same I do. pretense, right? I mean, we 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 could build it to actually be. I don't. I'm not. I'm not trying to make it sound like nefarious and like kind of preying on certain things, but it's like we all recognize all the sort of things that are going wrong with the nuclear family and or the things that we're missing with our family connections. You could almost take that and and fill in the blanks yeah, with yeah, yeah, yeah. some sort of quote yeah, I mean, community. The last, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I got scared when you said celebrities and brands. And I was like, oh, I really hope that we're not like... So that's what I'm trying to say is that... Finding family connections through like we all follow I mean, the same celebrity. But I also shouldn't knock it. Like that could be where you find the people that you forge relationships with. Because ultimately at the end of the day, just... We might think it's dysfunctional to find a connection around BTS, right? Like the Korean pop band. And that becomes my sort of family. But at the same time, who's to say that your blood relatives is a is a functional relationship either, right? Yeah, no, totally. No, totally. I think I'm, I myself am, I shouldn't see it that way. Because I, I mean, ultimately what it means or like what to redefine the family paradigm is to just find people who can be for you what in the past like extended and nuclear families were and it doesn't really matter where you find those people so long as you have those people essentially like if you find them through bts or nike or macon and then these are the people that are a true support system in the sense that like you could rely on them for things that in the past you might have relied on your family for then that's that's who the people are but I think it is hard. Mm-hmm. I think it is really hard. Like I think even in our head still is this ideal that it has to be your blood family that you are closest to, that you rely on the most. I, at least this is my perspective. Like I, I, I don't know. I don't have evidence that this is the widespread belief, but it just feels that way that there's still this collective feeling in society that where you find like true family is the people that you are like biologically related to. But I think this, the argument for a more, hmm, for families that work is to find families wherever and they don't have to be your relations. That whole notion of finding a way to plug it is what's interesting because I don't see us, well, you know what, whether or not we we return back to an extended family is to be determined. I think you'll need some sort of big shift or or movement. And I think we kind of see it, to be honest. Like, I think maybe the economics of the situation has sort of forced our hands a little mm-hmm. bit where either we're staying at home more often or we're forced mm-hmm. to have mm-hmm. roommates well into our mid-30s now. Like those are potential ways that might actually be changing the dynamic a little bit, to be honest. And you know, like most recently, as of the last 
you know, 18 months, I've been fortunate to live in an apartment building where I have two other friends. And that's actually pretty rare. It feels a little bit like university, but with more space and more privacy. So it's like, if you want to chill, you want to hang out, you want to grab lunch or whatever, grab dinner, you want to share a cab when you go home. Like it's actually super convenient. I actually thought of that specific, your specific example as a good example of like new extended family that you pick. That's that's working for you, as you just described. Like, you know... I wouldn't say there's any effort to it because if we're just actually all living our separate lives, but we choose to connect and we want to connect. But also you guys were already close friends that like friends that you could rely on each other, you know, not friends that you would feel awkward about being like, hey, uh, I've got a package coming. Like, can you are you at home? Like, can you pick it up for me? For example, you know, I'm trying to think about what is the obstacle in the way of people creating their own types of extended families or like there's a word that brooks uses that i like he uses the word kinship and so you can find your own kin and i think i like it because it doesn't have the same connotation as family and i'm trying to think about why is it that it's hard for people to find kinship i mean i think it's two things i actually don't think it's hard I think it's quite easy to find someone, and let's go back to the original example I made, right? I think finding quote-unquote kinship through these uh, niche subjects that you're into, those communities are quite easy to find, right? I'm on you know, a sub-2,000 person subreddit that's very active, like you know, a few times a day. Like That wasn't that hard to find. But on the second note, the reason why I think it's hard for you to create these types of sort of relationships is it just takes more time mm-hmm. when you don't do things face to face. Like we all know that ex- there's an accelerated trajectory when you and I have been talking online for the last three years, but mm-hmm. we happen to grab a one hour coffee. Right. And I think that's and it, until we, and maybe this is the sort of, uh, an interesting moment in time when suddenly so many people for health reasons have been able to work from home, they need to rethink how they communicate and interact with their peers. So are you able to actually build moments of intimacy? Are you able to go in and create vulnerability? Are you okay with it being in a space where it's going to be recorded? Someone can refer back to it. Like These are all things that actually are fundamentally key to building strong, mm. intimate moments and strong relationships. So how will someone take that and how will they do it? Like, yeah, I mean, you and I are doing this on Zoom right now. It's being recorded, but it could also not be recorded. Mm -hmm. It could be just a moment we share together. Mm -hmm. But for some other people, like Mm -hmm, they might be on Slack. mm -hmm. They might be sending an email. That's really interesting. And I also, this is my personal angle. I agree with you in the sense that I think it's easy to like identify people that you could be kin with through like the methods that you described before, whether that's like Reddit or, you know, following the same person or Slack community. But I think that the hard part about vulnerability and making those relationships is one, then also two, like in my own head, it's not normal or God, this is like my own hang up. It's like, it's almost, I, I think somewhere in my head, it's like, 
oh, is it weird to develop like a really close, like reliant information, like relationship with these people who are not my family? Like, how can I be forming like expectations of these people that I'm not related to? And do I really want to take on the responsibility of caring for these people as well? But at the same time, like, there's actually no real reason why the people you are blood related to should make it easier to like have expectations of and like be responsible to them except that that's like our societal construct that's the people you should lean on and ask things from Mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be that way if we just accept that we could find better support networks for ourselves by looking beyond the people we're related to do you believe in the proposition that blood relatives will care more like unequivocally or you actually think it's more of a case-by-case thing i think it's definitely very case-by-case there's obviously loads of examples out there of families that don't work and families that are harmful even and who hurt the people that they're related to i think it is i mean i'm not discounting nuclear families altogether but we don't just have to expect things from the people we're related to. And maybe sometimes that actually creates a lot of pressure that mm-hmm. doesn't that is not helpful. I don't know, but then I also think about the fact that like you and I are, you know, healthy, able-bodied, like able to earn our own kin- income. And there's obviously people out there who are less fortunate and if they can't find kin outside of their blood relatives, then they obviously need to rely on their blood relatives to help them. Mm -hmm. You know? Mm. And I wouldn't want that to go away. We're obviously born into a pre-existing like support network for a reason. Wait, are we? What? We don't really have a choice over that. Yeah, but like as a baby, you can't raise yourself. You can't raise yourself, but I think you're also left to the devices of things that are totally out of your control. I mean, yes, but someone still needs to raise you and feed you. I guess, yeah, to an extent. Like, you need it for sure, but I think whether or not everyone takes the same responsibility is another story. Well, yes, and not everyone does it to like the same degree, but we also 100% immediately need someone once you're born into the world. Mm Mm-hmm. And it doesn't actually have to be like biological. It it doesn't. I mean, but you you have to have someone there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a lot in this essay. There's so much that we could have picked up on and like talked about in detail because it is very long and goes into you know a whole variety of like complex interrelated subjects. But if I have to end with like one takeaway, it would be where I find support from and who I should be seeking support from. Not that I don't have existing support, but just that I think I think I could seek out more of an extended network than I do for myself. Do you think you'll be forced to do that? I mean, you've been away from home for like a few years. Year and a half now. I mean, but at the same time, it happens if you need it bad enough. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. Well, I'm realizing that. My topic this week is Parasite turned a Korean instant noodle dish into a hit at fancy New York City restaurants. The original piece that 
inspired me this week was an article by Luke Fortney in Eater. And essentially what it talks about is the movie Parasite. I'm not sure if, I mean, at this point, I think most people would probably be familiar with it. We should probably still not give any spoilers, but you can give an outline. I won't give any spoilers, but basically this has kind of been the biggest movie of the last, let's say, six months based on the number of awards it's won. Maybe it's not the one that everyone knows the best, the the one that made the most money at the box office, but it did win the Palme d'Or at the 2019 Cannes Film Festival won a bunch of awards at the Golden Globes, including Best Director, Best Screenplay, and Best Foreign Language Film. Nominated for four awards at the 73rd British Academy Film Awards. And finally... It's also genuinely a very good movie. It's not like one of those movies that just won awards and is not a good movie. It is actually a good movie. And you actually watched it, which is which is a huge vote of confidence in a movie. I watched it recently too. And this is how like, for some reason, like I always find it interesting when certain things just don't come into my media lanes. And what I mean by that is like, there can be really big pieces of news happening in your world or your world. And I may never hear about it just because of- I just don't understand how you dodged Parasite for so long. I have no idea. Wait, are, were you going to give an outline about this movie? Because I feel like you have to give a little bit of an outline. Yeah, no spoilers here. The story focuses on two families, one that's very affluent and the other one that's poor and struggling. The poor family, through a bit of social engineering, is able to infiltrate the home of the affluent family and service them as drivers, maids, and tutors. Mm-hmm. Uh, thematically, there's a lot of interesting things going on within this movie, including... Commentary on late-stage capitalism, social inequality, class conflict, and wealth disparity. So fast forward, there's this one scene in the movie where the rich family returns from a failed camping trip. I call it failed because it was raining. I don't think they stayed as long as they were supposed to. They kind of came home early. Yeah, exactly. And they call the maid who happens to be the mother of the poor family. And the mother requests the maid to make a dish called Ramdan, which combines a typically very pedestrian dish, which includes uh, instant noodles featuring udon, known as uh, nioguri. I don't even know if I'm saying that right. I'm saying that in a Japanese accent. And ramen, known as chapagetti. Mm-hmm. And together, the two are combined and they make this dish, uh, which is known as japuguri. Yeah. And it's a way for you to kind of take two things that are not necessarily not tasty but it's just to add like something fun and novel to it common you know they're just kind of regular yeah no they're very common it's no different than eating honestly it's like taking instant noodles like basically this is what it is it's like no different than like oh yeah it's like if if i took shin just different textures mixed it with which is just another two instant noodle brands the one thing that is unique about this is that in the movie what changes the context of the dish is when the family requests that they cook premium sirloin or hanu sirloin which is basically like korean wagyu yeah i mean people are more familiar with wagyu and just changes the whole dynamic of the dish and in 2019 director bong joon ho told justin chang of the la times that even the rich kid he's still a kid and that's why he loves this dish but the mom can't accept the fact that her son would eat such a cheap dish so she has to add a topping fit for the rich 
By the way, all of this was not something I realized while watching the movie. Like, oh, really? About the dish in particular? No. Like, I did not think about the whole, like, instant noodle sirloin aspect of that. Well, I just really appreciate, like, Bong Joon Ho's, like, attention to detail. Like, for me, I'm, I really, really love the. And I'm not not saying like food deliberately tries to be political, but I really love the the sort of nuance that food brings to storytelling. Oh yeah, and this sort of is what what really sort of leapt out at me while um, you were watching the anyways, movie. Oh, good job. I might have known beforehand, to be honest. Well, anyway, I think the point is that like, well, what my comment was just like the plot of the movie is already really exciting, and then like there's all of this sort of additional like layer within the plot of the movie. Okay, so what's happened since then? Since the movie's release, various restaurants have taken upon themselves to recreate the dish, albeit in a more decadent context. And when I mean that, I mean that some of them are foregoing the instant noodle route. They're actually going and Mm -hmm. elevating the ingredients and basically just trying to basically create it based off of the sort of tangibles of it. Mm -hmm. It's like just two different noodle consistencies. It's like a gourmet version. Since it was written in Eater, New York, most of these examples are from New York restaurants. So Zusik in New York offers a $20 version with hand-pulled noodles. Sham Garden offers a $13.95 version with prime short ribs. Mokbar does it with their own noodles as well for $25. And finally, Coat actually uses the same instant noodles. I wouldn't say same. I don't know that. But they actually use instant noodles with Wagyu, Mm -hmm. which clocks in at $18. What does it mean when... There's sort of such a strong sort of socioeconomic sentiment around this dish. And what do you gain or lose when you bring it and just sort of replicate it for the sake of, oh, this is what it is. Mm-hmm. It's like two different noodle consistencies. Mm-hmm. Like I think that's for me, like I shared this with a bunch of friends um, that are Korean American. I was like trying to get their gauge on it. Like I, for me, I, back to that whole topic about the socioeconomics of food, like, you know, I think Chinese cuisine, especially like you've seen the trajectory of, of Chinese culture in the last few hundred years. And there's certain things that are a little bit, not a little bit, they for sure are resistant to political change, right? Like you can burn books, but you don't just suddenly take an item off the menu. You know what I mean? And I think that's what I find most fascinating about food is that like, there's a lot of interesting things in that context. But for me, I was thinking about it and I was thinking, given that this movie is so much about sort of the way the affluent look at those beneath them because there is this one scene in the movie where the dad and the rich family just comments on sort of this smell that emanates from i guess the poor working class Mm -hmm, like there's mm -hmm. obviously this sort of class divide and i think it's interesting when yeah i mean it's very obvious in the movie yeah correct and i I was just thinking like for me it, it, it feels like it's a little bit disingenuous to take a dish that is so rooted in like that it's meant to be cheap is that what you're trying to say i think it's more like it's it has such a strong impactful like message around it but then it's turned into this gourmet dish which actually to me kind of goes totally against what it's what the whole meaning of this dish means like it's kind of this high low thing it's this juxtaposition but then it's kind of losing the plot by actually trying to make it bougie Well, I mean, okay, so I have two takes on this. One is that I get why they have to do that, though, as a restaurant, because they're not just like a movie-themed eatery. Do you know what I mean? 
Like they're not. But you're taking the context of them. They're not like a parasite restaurant. And so they're serving like an exact replica of like the parasite dish. They're like these nice restaurants people go to regularly for like good food. And so to make something that like matches the rest of their menu, if they want to make the dish, then they need to make something that fits in. And it's not just like a tribute. It's also something that like, you know. I mean, it's not even just about that price point. I feel if the movie wasn't so serious. If it's not just about the price point, but just like for like the restaurant, it's like, oh, like we gotta be sure we honor like the types of ingredients that we usually use and like something like that. You know, so I get that. And I don't think that the price is like exorb probably not exorbitant in comparison to the rest of their menu. So it just like fits in, you know? It's like they can't offer like all these other twenty dollar mains and then like this five dollar. I guess I don't agree with it. The reason why Parasite did so well, because I think of, because it's based on the commentary, right? Like, it's one thing if this was some Disney movie and like, oh, you know what? This was a dish that like Elsa ate in like Frozen 2. Like, I don't give a shit about that. But I think that in terms of the fact that like the very reason why this is actually so impactful and you're kind of like missing, missing the whole plot, right? So then I guess they just shouldn't offer the dish. Well, that's what I'm trying to say. It's like, I kind of feel like it's, I understand that, that restaurants aren't necessarily, they don't necessarily exist to create cultural moments, right? Like a mm-hmm. movie kind of creates a cultural moment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't know, man. I, I, I look at it and I'm thinking it's like, oh, this is kind of like just slipstreaming into like some sort of trend or fad when oh, actually you could yeah. have like fully understood the, the ramifications of this. Like I actually think Coat did it the best because they, they maintained the same level of well, I guess they, they, they did they, something they, that's a more direct replica with of the movie yeah. dish with the instant noodles and the wagyu. Don't price it like 18, 20 bucks or whatever. I actually think that, or sorry, um, yeah, $18. Like, I think it actually, I actually think it, it makes a lot more sense if they take it and then you price it at like 50 bucks or something exorbitant. Like, you want to see the real, like, satirical play. Like, you want to yes. see the the restaurants, like, embrace this whole um kind of commentary on wealth disparity because if you because if there wasn't even that commentary in the first place why there would be no reason why these people would come and even why, why this dish would even have any sort of like cultural relevance i, I don't know you. maybe i just wanted something to rant about i mean of all the things that you could pick up to rant about i think this one's like relatively harmless i think i mean it's interesting why restaurants would even decide to offer japakuri and it really talks about like how popular Parasite is because definitely there are like other popular films that then people don't decide to make dishes that honor like those movies a- yeah. as like re- yeah. regular restaurants. That's like not really a thing that restaurants yeah. do, you know? But then they were like, oh, we really feel like we're going to capitalize off of this moment with Parasite. I, I guess one thing too is like, it's almost like the belief that just because it's cheap, it's not good. Right. Like, I think that's one thing that some of these uh, chefs and restaurant owners said. It's like, oh, like it wouldn't make sense if we use instant. But instant honestly tastes amazing. Yeah. In many I mean, instances. I think like, they, this is what, though, it goes back to my, like, my first, the first comment I made about like restaurants still wanting to be like, you know, handcrafted or like really honoring their ingredients. And so they didn't want to just like offer the instant noodle version. But I also think they could have. I also agree that they could have just done a straight instant noodle version. Anyways, that's all I have. I Okay, wait, I, I don't think I ever said my second take on this. My second take being is that like, 
I don't know these restaurants, you know, very well, but like, I also just kind of applaud their capitalization of the moment. Like, even though I understand what you're saying about, like, they've diluted the meaning of Parasite and, like, its depth, but that's also, like, a really quick way to take advantage of customers who love a movie. I guess so. Who happen to be non-Korean. So yeah. maybe it's a transfer of wealth there. I don't know. I wonder if, this is such an aside, but I wonder if Korean um like bodegas and supermarkets offered more instant noodles like after the movie came out because i feel like that could have been a good play too they could have sold more they yeah, could have maybe. marked it up if, no I'm, I'm not sure although it's pretty easy to buy off amazon i mean you in hong kong you could probably just go into your closest supermarket and get both of those i don't really eat a lot of instant noodles though like, I eat instant noodles, but not that type. You should make japaguri with wagyu and then, like, offer it to people out of your home. Okay. I have a potluck on Sunday. Nicole's right beside me. I'm, I'm nudging her right now. Maybe we'll do that. I mean, I feel like you'd be pretty pleased with yourself. That's all I have for this topic. Well, I'm really glad you watched Parasite. I watched Jojo the Rabbit, too. Oh, did you really? Why? Did you watch it? I did watch it. Someone said it was good. So, Nicole... This is watching. now like MIU reviews movies. So what'd you think? I wasn't, I don't know. I don't really like war movies. I don't, it wasn't uh, that interesting. I couldn't get into it. Got it. I got into it like bits and pieces with like the jokes, but I, mm-hmm. I typically don't really like it. Not even watching. You had your earplugs on the whole time. Because I couldn't get into it. I don't know if you can hear Nicole. <laughs> I heard but Nicole. That's because you're never into anything because you're always on your phone. Oh my goodness. I, I focused on Parasite, though. You know what could be fun, actually, is like, okay, I, I would have to pick a movie very carefully, but we could pick a movie and then do an episode that's like just talking about a movie. We could. Movie could reviews. That. Yeah. I don't know if people would care enough about what I have to say about movies. I mean. I watched... I have no idea what you're talking about. Guy Ritchie did a movie that had like Hugh Grant and stuff in it. What? If you haven't seen it, I suggest you watch it. You didn't even know it was Hugh Grant. I didn't know it was the Hugh gentleman? Grant. Like I just went. Uh, the gentleman. Is it yeah, really? especially if you're in the UK. The well, go looks, watch it. The poster looks not good. I went into it with no expectations, no understanding of what it was about. Okay, don't tell me anymore and I'll I'll watch it based off of your recommendation. Though yep. also, I mean, this is not related to your subject at all now. We could also do a book episode one day. You've been doing a lot of reading. I could commit to reading one of the books that you've been reading. And then we this could This is a side because we were going to do this with uh, Open Office. Oh, we are we going to do, do a book club? Uh, could. I mean, I think you would need to set it because I don't really follow books enough. And like, I'd be down to do it, but okay, I don't know. Well, let's think about it. Okay, good place to cap things off. If you are interested in hearing more about making, reading, and listening to some of our stories focus on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at makin.com. M-A-E-K-A-N.com. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by reviewing us on iTunes 
or sharing this podcast with a friend. Also, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email myself at Sharice at Macon.com, C-H-A-R-I-S, or Eugene at Eugene at Macon.com, E-U-G-E-N-E. We love hearing from you. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up.